Hi, everyone. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Socially Determined. Socially Determined is leading the transformation of healthcare delivery and payment through social risk analytics and solutions. Their social risk analytics platform, Socialscape, along with their social risk data and industry-leading expertise, empower health plans, providers, and other risk-bearing organizations to manage risk, improve outcomes, and advance equity at scale. To learn more, visit sociallydetermined.com. Greetings, everyone. This is Eric Glazer, and welcome to our next episode of Bright Spots in Healthcare, produced by Shared Purpose Connect. Each episode, we bring leaders together to not only inform you, our audience, but also unearth bright spots, successes at health plans, hospitals, and various other healthcare-related organizations around the country. Our goal is to identify as many bright spots as possible so that you, the listener, can determine if the ideas shared during this episode can be applied at your organization. We believe this approach of finding a bright spot and cloning it is the most effective strategy to improving healthcare in our lifetime. The topic for today is health equity, place-based interventions, or put another way, place-based equity, and our guest is exceptional. She is Dr. Omalara. Uma Medimo. She is a healthcare social entrepreneur, a board certified pediatrician, community health equity consultant, career transition and business coach, public health researcher, and health justice advocate. She is currently the CEO and co founder of Strong Children Wellness, a multi award winning healthcare practice in New York City, providing integrated physical, mental, and social health services for low income communities of color. Back in 2019, Dr. Uma Medimo went, uh, lost her ability to walk. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, a chronic autoimmune disorder during her recovery. She became a staunch wellness advocate for women of color in healthcare who often experience disproportionately higher rates of chronic disease due to weathering, the early deterioration of our health due to medical racism and toxic stress in the workplace. In response, she founded Melanin and Medicine, a premier career and business development company to help women of color thrive by pivoting into purpose-led careers as well as building healthcare enterprises. She also has a weekly podcast you should check out called Melanin and Medicine, and she has helped hundreds and hundreds of women in doing so. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. I'm excited to be here again. Yes, <laughs> but we haven't done one-on-one. So some background. Uh, a few months ago, Omalara was on one of our roundtables that we record live. And in getting to know her and learn a little bit about her background and her story, I said, geez, we need to do a one-on-one so we could dive deeper into who this individual is and some of the great insights of Bright Spots that she has with her experience and expertise. So I'm excited that we finally are able to do this. So let's get right into it. Uh, and let's start with what is place-based equity, as I'll call it, or place-based interventions? 
Yeah, so place-based interventions are really just a model that has been used for quite a long time um, to address health inequities. And what it really refers to are approaches that focus on a geographic location. Um, it's not limited to a neighborhood, um, but it, it can be as wide as a specific community or zip code. But the idea is improving health that aligns community members, businesses, institutions, Others, I think, often cross-sector, right? So schools, churches in that area to address issues that impact health, since we know that health is only 20% of health actually is alleviated by clinical care, right? Everything else is outside of what we call traditional health. And so these are multi-level intervention strategies. These are long these are established, these have to be sustained together. And so it's not for the faint of heart, but it's a really um, cool entity that has been around for, for very, very many years. So when I bring on guests on the show that represent health plans or providers, and they talk about partnerships with community-based organizations, and maybe they're doing health screening at a church or they're doing vaccinations, uh, at a community-based organization, uh, that sounds like you know place-based interventions. But how, my guess is it's not. So, how are you defining place-based interventions and sort of uh, differently than than maybe some of the CBL partnerships we cover on the show from time to time? Yeah. So, I think the first thing and probably the central point is always community-led, community-focused right, and community informed. And so ultimately, the first thing that I think often happens is we from on high see this problem with the community. Let's create something and do it. And actually place-based interventions like things like collective impact, which is one of the strategies, neighborhood revitalization, that's another um, potential um, place-based kind of intervention. There are different ways people do this. But for example, usually what would happen is you'd have community residents, their advocates, leaders leverage their resources, bring their ideas and thoughts about what's going on, and then being able to say, what are the contributing factors? Who needs to be at the table? And bringing those specific groups there to start to think through this. So there's a lot of planning that happens first, not implementation, to really get this right and say, what is it that communities are going to gravitate to? What is it that's going to be prioritized according to them that's going to be, that needs to be addressed specifically? And then how do we ensure that the work we're doing actually includes community residents so that there is more buy-in, trust, and engagement with the work that, that we're doing? So, so it's a it's a bottom up almost approach. Uh, I know you know this show's been is inspired by uh, positive deviance and that concept and the and sort of the the, the positive deviance kind of uh, experts would say and purists would say you know everything has to be a bottom up sort of approach uh, to a solution almost uh, almost as if the folks suffering from the problem are leading in their in their solution in many ways. So it sounds like, and that makes it sustainable. So it sounds like you need to take a community, you may need to empower and inspire the community and maybe enable the community, but it has to be the community coming up with the solution. So uh, they, they establish it, they implement it, and then it becomes more sustainable. Yeah. And I like to say, 
you know, I'm I probably, you know, I'm a pediatrician, so I'm very kind of like kumbaya. Um, so I like to say it's top down, top and bottom, right? So top is usually the people who are going to honestly in this society get a, a large amount of, of financial or whatever resources are needed capacity and the bot and but the idea is definitely not to prescribe right and so there's this mantra of nothing for us without us that a lot of us say in the community engagement world where it's really important for then i have all these resources let me wait and let me actually use them actually figure out what's going to work and so it's getting resources we need the top people we need them because we need that money we need those resources we need that infrastructure and then we need the ideas the the people the um the you know strategy from the community so it's this really nice intersection i think when you uh, i i like that a lot and it's very analogous to sort of the science of empower positive deviance incidentally uh, yeah. when, when, when you're when you're talking about place-based interventions and you were mentioning some strategies you mentioned collective impact Could, mm -hmm. can you explain what that is yeah collective impact um i first learned about collective impact from fsg um a consulting agency in in the health equity space and it basically is the idea that you're bringing in different um how should I say it? You're bringing in cross-sector collaboration. So a lot of times when, when place-based intervention was first you know, happening, so one of the big times we think about this are actually in um, indigenous areas, right? Reservations where it was kind of like, how do we bring health? <laughs> like, um, uh, how do we improve the health of these areas? And it was very area-based. Um, we collect, and it's folk and very focused on health. Collective impact is saying, it's taking in the knowledge of the SDH world and saying that, no, we need business, we need housing, we need food, we need all of those people instead of just like health workers and anybody that's proximal to health. And so it's just the idea to address these complex community problems. We're aligning public and private partnerships and then fully engaging the community residents. Um, so it requires a lot of work groups, a lot of um, initial planning around, okay, who's going to do what? But the main focus is what's the health outcome that we're trying to improve, whether that be, you know, um, let's say, for example, we're trying to improve um, heart heart disease, then we want to think about where does where do workplaces fit in? Where do churches fit in? Where do the health where does the health system fit in? And so then each of them is tasked with the strategy that is that that comes up from these communal conversations to then implement and then touch base with each other as we're implementing. Could you provide an example of an organization that is implementing a place-based intervention strategy well? Yeah, so I trained at the fabulous, I will always represent Boston Medical Center. <laughs> I, I uh, really- <laughs> yes, forever. Um, but I trained as a pediatrician at Boston Medical Center during my residency. And one of my mentors, um, Megan Sandell, um, she ran, while well, I was in residency, she ran the uh, housing for the homeless. Um, and that, and it floored me because I was like, wait, she's a pediatrician and she's doing this stuff that doesn't seem like 
remotely health related, but we know now that that was extremely health related. Um, and so she is the lead on uh, entity that I believe received funding from JP Morgan Chase. It was called, it was an advancing cities grant and they created this Boston Opportunity System Collaborative. And the idea was actually Boston Medical Center would be a backbone organization, which you often see that in, in terminology about collective impact. You want a backbone organization that can doesn't have to tell everybody. It's not a leader. It's like the one who has, potentially has money and can like just be able to provide that infrastructure and resources. And so the goal is actually to provide um, employment pathways and affordable housing for people in some of Boston's most disinvested communities. Like um, I think they had, um, I don't know if it's Dud. I'm trying to remember what the neighborhoods are, but it it um, escapes me right now. And so what they do is that even as a health system, their focus is actually on bringing together um, organizations that provide, you know, public benefits, of course, but then also they work with building affordable housing with developers. <laughs> and people might say, whoa, okay, that's different. But the idea, of course, is that those people without that housing usually are going to really end up in the emergency room and incur more costs. And so they are working with developers. They are working with um, uh, social service agencies. They are working with employers as well to ensure that we are building that up so that people are employed, have less financial strain, and then basically are able to thrive, right? So it's a very... Uh, what I like to say, upstream focused um, uh, collaborative. And that's what most of these collective impact models are. It's really thinking upstream. So, so if I was going to Google it or, or our listeners were going to Google it, like Boston Medical Center housing for the homeless, do you think? Oh, find? no. For, for this, it's actually um, a Boston Opportunity System Collaborative. That's the, that's the um, name of the collaborative. Boston Opportunity System Collaborative, sure, yeah. it comes right up. All right, great. <laughs> People want to check it out. Uh, and then can you repeat the name of the physician that inspired you that started? Yeah, Dr. Megan Sandell. Megan Sandell, S-A-N-D-E-L. Yes. Got it. Hey, folks, we'll get back to my interview with Dr. Omolara Umanadimo in just a moment. Just a little bit more about our sponsor and partner socially determined up to 80 percent of healthcare utilization cost outcomes and equity are driven by non-clinical factors such as financial strain food insecurity transportation barriers and health literacy challenges yet organizations there are that are accountable for these outcomes lack visibility into how these factors are impacting the markets they serve and the population they bear risk for. And those organizations can include Medicaid, MCOs, Medicare Advantage plans, and providers engaged in value and risk-based contracts. Socially Determined helps these organizations bridge this gap with their industry-leading social risk analytics and solutions, which provide a holistic view of the contours and concentrations of STOH risk at the community level, as well as person-specific social risk factor scores at the individual level. It's actually a perfect way of impacting clinical costs and total cost of care. They do all of this without any direct engagement with your patients or members, providing 
a holistic and equitable view of risk and need for your full market and population. You need to check these folks out. Learn more about their social scape platform, social risk data, and STOH expertise that can empower your teams to manage risk, improve outcomes, and advance equity for your full market and member population. Visit them at sociallydetermined.com if you want to be introduced to their CEO, Trenner Williams, Dr. Trenner Williams. Email me at eglazerchairpurposeconnect.com. I'm happy to make a personal introduction. Now back to my interview with Dr. Omalara Umamadimo. Was that what inspired you to, you know, get into you know place-based interventions and 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 make this such a? You know, why is place-based intervention so important to you? Like, what enabled you? What sort of what was your awakening moment, if you will, around this and 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 how you got so involved? What what is? Yeah. So I think. Um, you know, I, I definitely, of course, I am the daughter of immigrants. And so uh, I've been exposed really early to other cultures and um, from an early age, got very interested in travel and working in different places. And maybe it's more bored with just the, just being here, but got got really interested in that. And then when I actually would travel back and forth to Nigeria, which is where my parents are from, I would see how different I was from my, you know, from, from my cousins. And it was just because of the places that we lived, right? Um, and so ultimately, as I got older, I wanted to do more work and learn more about working in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and in that, what I found was there were many of the interventions, many of the things that were happening were very centrally focused on that specific community. And so the health, you know, the, the space where people would go for their health was directly in that community. Um, the, the person who was running that knew everyone in the community. So let's say if it was a physician, if it was a nurse, um, they knew everything about everyone and they didn't just know their health, right? They knew what was happening in the community and in that way could figure out how to bring this person back, how to address their needs. And then um, what I think really hit it home was my experience in Cuba. And so in Cuba, they have a methodology called consultorios. Many of us in the health space, public health space, look at Cuba as a model in the public health space, just because with limited resources, they've been able to have such amazing health outcomes. Um, and so one of the things that in my time there that they created was these consultorios where it would be a doctor and a nurse every few blocks who lived in the community and actually was, um, you know, would do home visits. People, of course, easily could get to them. And then they would be the first stop before either referring to the next, which would be maybe a community health center and then maybe uh, a hospital if, need, if needed. And so that model just got ingrained in my mind where it just seemed like if people really had a pulse, specifically healthcare providers um, had a pulse on what was happening in the community and looked like they were from the community and based in that, that there seemed to be a different dynamic and trust that allowed for people to both reveal themselves and get care and engage with the health system in a different way. Fascinating. So interesting and littered there with with bright spots in other countries. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, resources. I mean, w w as far as, you know, applying this 
to our market, you know, what is the payment model? And is there an example of a model that's actually working? Yeah. So it's interesting. So <laughs> um, I'm going to put something to the side because, of course, you know, as a pediatrician, I think that um, children like investing in children, of course, is something that is not being done within the American payment model system. But investing in low income, um, you know, in Medicaid and really thinking about how do we do this in particular, this kind of work, because I think one of the things you, you heard me say throughout everything is that a lot of times the focus has been on communities and particularly disinvested communities and Many times those are in our system are predominantly populations who are on Medicaid and some that aren't covered, right, un undocumented. The payment model that exists that or that it, that needs to be changed or needs to be um, really invested in is our Medicaid um, payment. And I think we're moving towards value-based care um, and the idea of how can we leverage value-based care for this. So... Um, in the Bronx, actually, Montefiore and the New York State De Department of Health. So Montefiore is a huge health system in New York. Um, New York State Department of Health collaborated to get um, to be a part of a demonstration project that was given by the Centers of uh, Medicaid and Medicare Services. And it's called Bronx Equity Integrated Care for Kids. And I think it's a really um, interesting example because the focus of it, I think it's seven years, right? Whoever gets funding for seven years. So that's the first thing, <laughs> but they get seven years of funding. And the goal was to improve the children's health in eight zip codes, right? And the thought was, how are we going to do this? We have to have healthcare providers, community-based organizations, um, health homes, which do a lot of care coordination and manage care plans together. So once again, you see that collective impact kind of sitting in there. But the idea is these different organizations now have been tasked with different pieces, some monitoring and evaluation and reporting from like the health plans to see what's happening with the children, care coordination by these health homes, community-based organizations are to address their social determinants. And so all of them are working together. Um, and then there's a payment structure that is dispersed for each um, of the participating organizations to be able to deliver that per member per month, right? So for each of those organ for each of these children, there's a certain amount that's being given. Now, this is a grant, right? And the thought is, how can we shift this into an actual um, real life scenario? So one thing I'll mention is that New York also has just um, moved forward with a, um, a 1115 Medicaid waiver. And what that is thinking about a new model of basically doing the same thing, bringing together social, um, I would say community-based organization-led collaboratives with healthcare as a part of it, and then giving, getting them Medicaid dollars to be able to deliver these, to have a certain community and all the children in those communities um, being covered by these regional entities. So those are some of the new things that are happening. The Medicaid waiver hasn't been approved yet, but um, it's just gone through public comment. So that I think that's an example. I think those are different examples of how we need to move forward with this kind of work. And it's going to be innovative and messy. <laughs> so uh, I just want Bronx Equity Integrated Care for Kids. Correct. Is, uh, and then there's, there's a bunch of stuff on the web on it. There's an article from June of 2021. Uh, 
the, the acronym RHIO, I'm not exactly sure what that's, Bronx Regional Health Information Organization, that's what it stands for. Mm -hmm. uh, so you'll find some good stuff, you just Google it, and Integrated Care for Kids, the acronym they're using is NCK. Healthcare is great with all these acronyms. <laughs> but some really interesting uh, articles on, on the web about it and some press releases. So again, Bronx Equity, Integrated Care for Kids, if you want to look it up. So what's your personal day-to-day -day role in evangelizing, you know, place-based, yeah. equity, place-based interventions? So I have two roles. Of course, is Strong Children Wellness. It's um, for that role, it's giving an example of a place-based intervention, of course, where we are, we decided, you know, no, we're just going to bring healthcare into these communities. And I think that has been a really exciting model that has gotten a lot of traction where people are seeing, you know, healthcare not say, okay, let's bring everything to us, but really, you know, acknowledging the fact that healthcare is just a small part of health outcomes. And so my first role is always evangelizing SCW as a model that we would love to make sure it's scaled and that people are thinking about how to do that in their own realm. How do they, what communities are coming to them that aren't being served and how do we decentralize healthcare? So that's my first role. So <laughs> yeah. Strong Children Wellness, SCW, uh, is at strongchildrenwellness.com. People can mm -hmm. check it out. Right yeah. My second role is thinking about what is the innovation? Because I feel as a, a woman of color in healthcare, that many times the innovation and the ideas that I had, I was trying to figure out ways to, to make them work, even though it wasn't part of my compensated work, but it was part of my mission, right? And, I, and it was part of my connection to the communities that I served. And I think in doing that, two things happened. One, I, um, got burnt out because I was working five jobs instead of just the one that I was, um, that I was, uh, you know, being paid for. And two, it made me start to think about, um, the limitations that I had put in myself that these, these, um, ideas that I have could only work within specific um, organizations and, and couldn't be scaled, right? And so the first thing that happened um, in May, you mentioned this in May of 2019, about six months after I realized I was burnt out, I was hospitalized. I found out I had MS. And I, for the first time since um, I was 15, 15 was when I finished high school, I had to stop working <laughs> and I had to like figure out what I was going to do. And I think ultimately the biggest emphasis for me, the biggest, I would say, I don't want to say emphasis, but the, the biggest instigator, instigating event for me was when I figured out that I needed to streamline and I needed to focus and I wasn't able to bring what I wanted to do to fruition within or within an organization. And the reason was because it was a little too disruptive and radical, right? You're telling healthcare organization, hey, let's take our stuff and put it here. <laughs> and they're like, uh, that sounds very strange. And I think one of the things that was really important for me was getting the courage to be, to say, 
with, you know, two other equally frustrated women of color to say, hey, I think we could probably try to do this on our own. And once we realized we could, then being able to now inspire other women to do that, women of color, to take these ideas and either bring them and see if that they can innovate within their institutions as entrepreneurs. And if not, not to settle and actually learn how you could get those funded and get them built as hardcore, solid, profitable businesses that are also making huge impacts. And that's melanin medicine. That's how, that's what I do now for women. Medicine, right? I don't even know if you mentioned it. So, that, <laughs> and where if folks put in melanin and medicine? Yeah, melaninandmedicine.co. Co. Got it. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Melaninandmedicine.co. If you want to check that organization out. So, are, are there a couple of recommendations maybe you can make to the health payers? Uh, around their health equity strategy? Yeah, so I would say there are probably three. So um, I like to think about my focus has always been on how do we achieve not health equity, but health justice. And the reason why I say this is because health justice requires us to break down the, you know, health equity is helping, you know, give as many resources as we need to make sure that everyone's at the same level. But health justice makes us figure out why, why aren't people at the same level anyway? Like, what are the silos that exist structurally and systemically? And so I want us to really move into that realm of not solely being like, okay, let's like fill in the gap and then health justice, let's think about how to get rid of the gap, okay? So the first thing I would say is the pathway. And I like to use the word pathway as thinking about how health, how health payers can really start to get the, the way forward through community-focused needs assessments and getting information from the community on what they should do, right? And so I think a lot of times health payers have been focused on like a one-size-fits-all, honestly, right? Because it's easy. However, if we look at which places are re where they're having the most costs, where, what, what communities those are happening at, then I think the goal is for them to start to invest into community health outreach to start to get information about what are the needs, what are, what are the barriers from community members, and then starting to, to identify what assets and organizations could potentially um, alleviate those. So I think that's the first thing. Being, being a, having a community focus rather than just a one size fits all. The second thing is partnership. I think that health payers are going to do themselves a service, uh, doing themselves a, a great service if they think outside of health and investing in health. And so that means if I'm noticing that the ER claims are coming from people who are mostly homeless or mostly uh, um, undocumented or mostly, you know, whatever the, the potential adversity is, then I am going to think about what organizations actually provide the supports for those populations and saying that we're not just going to invest in them going to the PCP, but we're going to invest in these other assets that these other organizations can do. That's radical in its head of thinking about a health payer saying I'm going to invest in non-health things, but that is the second thing. And then the last thing are processes. I think um, 
we really have to think about, you know, making sure that we have a model that um, we tweak and we, you know, don't just let happen. uh, I think one of the things that's been really difficult for me has been seeing certain state-based initiatives that are getting funded that no one's evaluating (laughs) and being like, actually, Looking at this, we've seen that not nothing has really changed for these people. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that happens when we have these big gargantuan investments. Um, and so I think one of the things is really being able to make sure we have both qualitative and quantitative evaluation processes and models of what needs to be tweaked. Um, and then, you know, being able to iterate and not kind of let things linger um, and unfortunately allow for people to continue to have bad health outcomes. So the pathway, uh, payers establishing community focus, need assessment and getting insights from the community, like in a product development role, it's like, get into the market and listen to the market, listen yeah. to your customers. Partnership, like, but non-healthcare partnership, if I could put it mm-hmm. that. Yep. Thinking about the non-clinical needs of the community and investing in organizations that support those like housing, as an example. And I would say uh, the third one, you said processes, is it's almost a continuous quality improvement. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So taking... Uh, these processes spawned by big investments and then uh, evaluating on an ongoing basis, qualitatively and quantitatively, uh, if they're working and making adjustments as appropriate. Mm-hmm. You got it. <laughs> well, let's say this was great. Uh, this was everything I thought it would be. Uh, where can people uh, find you and, and connect with you? I know you have your podcast, Melanin and Medicine, but if they want to reach out and message you, where can they find you? LinkedIn is the best place because I have everything on LinkedIn. <laughs> so um, you can go to, I believe my is Dr. Omolara, but I'm Omolara Thomas Uemidimo um, on LinkedIn. So you can come over there and, you know, I've, I've invested in my LinkedIn. So I have all of my bio, I have my featured things. So you can get a little mishmash of everything about me. <laughs> I'm going to spell uh, your first and last name for folks, uh, though it should be that everything will be in the notes. Uh, within the podcast feed but for folks who are a little lazy it's o-m-o-l-a-r-a for omolara's first name and last name uh uma uma demo u w e m e d i m like mother o yeah fantastic thanks so much omolara this was great really appreciate it and thanks for everyone who took the time to listen uh, and you'll have all these links that we talked about in the description of the show within the podcast feed. Uh, Appreciate everyone taking the time as a reminder, this is your bright spots and healthcare podcast. Take care, everyone. Hey everyone, before you take off, just a few quick items. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, I ask you the huge favor of giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. It sounds fickle, but these ratings really help us make this podcast sustainable long-term. Even better, if you could write a positive comment or testimonial, that would be very helpful. We'd really appreciate it. If you have suggestions, constructive criticism, or simply want to connect, I am on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Eric Glazer, or you can email me directly at eglazer at sharedpurposeconnect.com. 
The Bright Spots in Healthcare podcast is produced by Sherry Keels, Cesar Del Castillo, and me. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.